A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 121 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get the show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Hurlman. And with me, as always, the B-Wing to my X-Wing, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! That's right, when my body spins, my head points the same direction. <laughs> yeah, I just figured, you know, more firepower, come to the rescue, and total rebel. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we answer the questions you listeners sent in for us over the past few weeks. So, consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. That's right. The whole idea this time was to essentially get a a batch of short questions, not big listener feedback type uh, emails, but emails with short questions, sometimes more than one, with the idea being let's hit as many of the things that uh, listeners are curious about as possible. So since we put up that call for questions, which went up on the Facebook page uh, and through Twitter, which of course uh, had to be submitted through email, that way they were all coming to the same place, we got quite a few uh, in particular, we're going to be answering ones that came in from uh, George Smith, from Dom the Poli Sci Jedi, from uh, Chris Pearson, albeit that one. Uh, it's actually a question that was originally posted on the Facebook page for Star Wars Action News and then forwarded to us so that we could address that one on air, and this seemed like an appropriate time to do that. Um, we also have ones coming in from Luke Van Horn, Kenny Crayley, Jared Rasher, Sandro George, and uh, Dwayne Stockton, and I think... That's everybody this time around. Uh, 14 questions total that we're going to be hitting in no particular order. So, Mark, you ready for random question number one? You may fire when ready. All right, random question number one. Why are all of Darth Crate's one Sith red-skinned? Oh, that is a good question. One I've perplexed and pondered myself a few times because it, it, it's like, is that the tattoo? Because obviously 
you know, they couldn't have just got lucky and found all the right skin tones out there. Oh, hey, you're the right skin tone. Let's tell you about this program. It's called The One Sith. Yeah, Darth Crane, he's our master. He don't have red skin, but what the heck? He's just recruiting everybody, and you got the right skin tone. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it just that that's always seemed like the, the tongue-in-cheek kind of, I don't know, not really in-universe is... To me, it's like, well, they thought it was Darth Maul. You know, they were kind of doing a Darth Maul tattoo. And I've always thought Darth Maul might not have been red-skinned or black-skinned, but but more like yellow-skinned or something like that until the Clone Wars kind of came and, and kind of messed with how I thought about that. But I always thought it was a red and black tattoo that he would, was totally inked from head to toe, which I thought would hurt really, really bad. You know, and, and I always thought that Legacy kind of followed that example. And so it, it would all be tattoos and stuff as far as I would think, or, or maybe a skin pigmentation process. But... It does kind of make you scratch your head and go, yeah, why are they all red? Because <laughs> it's a little funny when you think about it in terms of, well, Maul wasn't really tattooed as, as much as we thought he was. Yeah, I'm not sure there is an answer to this other than uh, the, the, the behind-the-scenes sort of version of it, which would be that at the time the idea was to make them all look sithy and look very cool, just like Darth Maul did. And Darth Maul had been the only Sith in the films that was sort of kept to the shadows, right? He didn't really have a public persona. Uh, you know, Sidious couldn't be all tattooed up as a Sith because, well, he had to be out there as Palpatine. Same thing with Tyrannus, Dooku, and so forth. And Vader wouldn't have mattered because he was inside the suit all the time. And he didn't have time as Anakin as he became Vader before he became more machine than man to get tattooed or anything. Of course, now we find that it's not a question of, well, let's make them red and black skin to look like Maul because that was Maul's Sith markings. Now, thanks to the Clone Wars, we know that has nothing to do with the Sith. That is instead the Knight Brother marking from Dathomir for these Iridonian Zabrax who wound up in the colony on Dathomir. So it's sort of the, ha ha, you guys tried to make yourself look like Sith and instead you just made yourself look like Knight Brothers. Anybody on Dathomir is looking at you like, you're stupid, kind of things. Um... Although I must say, the, the question that arises, and I think this is something that the original email raised, and you raised it too, Mark, is sort of that, you know, this must be a pigmentation thing where they have to go through and not only tattoo the markings on you, whether it's black or red, on top of the other, but they have to change that base color too. Otherwise, what you're looking at is a Hitler-esque racial discrimination here. You can only be a Sith if your skin is already red, or I guess already black if it's red tattoos over the black. Um, either way, I would not want to, uh, to to enter into the Sith. I guess the Sith now have their own version of the Yuzhan Vong embrace of pain <laughs> because you now have to get tattoos all over your body to be part of the one Sith. And when we say all over, it probably means, as Darth Talon seems to suggest, all over. And yeah, yeah. sounds painful to me. Well, imagine if the one Sith would have took a Hydra route, you know, like, Hell, one Sith! And if you cut off our head, two more will replace. I mean, imagine if the Sith would have gone that route. You know, Krayat dies, and even though, you know, Warlock kind of steps into the light, but what if, what if you know, like Talon and a couple others decide, you know, we're also going to lead divisions over here. And, and instead of them falling upon themselves, they actually just do get stronger. You're just like, oh my gosh, this is, I don't know, that'd be a fun story. I mean, it's kind of like the Sith in general, you know, the taking down of the more powerful Sith to take over. It's just that sense that um, there's the, the organization underneath really didn't exist until the one Sith to have the Sith minions out there, at least yeah. in an organized fashion. All right, that's one. Second question, again, in random order here. 
what are your favorite Star Wars poster designs from the films, EU, and Clone Wars, and who are your favorite Star Wars poster designers? Oh, that's a rough one, because I, I, I don't pay attention to who's doing the designs, so I couldn't really answer the designers. But uh, for my favorite posters, uh, I would say I, I've got the... the I think it was like a, a teaser poster for the episode one where they had the Gungans coming out of the, uh, the, the fog. That was always cool. I always loved the classic movie ones. Uh, on my wall, I used to have all those lined up. Um, there is the 1977, one of the uh, movie posters with the X-Wing swooping up and around. Uh, my wife got me it for uh, my Christmas of 2009, I think. Uh, it's big. It's in my studio. And I, I just I love that one. And the classic Return of the Jedi where it's just the green lightsaber swooping up with Luke's hands. Just that that one, as well as the one where you see the Death Star and you got Luke and he's wearing the black uh, uniform and Leia's got the slave. I, I don't know. There's a couple different ones that, that I really enjoy. Um, when it comes to the prequels, though, the one with Anakin where he's got the shadow of Vader is, is another one of those that stand out is one of my favorites. I never did get the poster of that one, though. Uh, it never, it came or they, they just never got it stocked. I remember seeing the little spot in the little poster bin, but it, it was never there. I was always ticked. I'm like, where is that? You know, but yeah, it's one of those things. Uh, I haven't been keeping up with posters or I don't know if they've been doing as many posters of late. I just remember like back in the early nineties through 2005, not early nineties, but uh, late nineties through early 2005, uh, there was all influx of posters you know you had the good the bad the one with anakin where you had half anakin and the jedi of the prequel trilogy and then you had uh, vader and everybody from the original trilogy and you could put the two together and it made a full anakin half and half um there was the dark side the light side those posters all by themselves i mean i've got so many different posters that that came out back through that time frame uh, that it got to the point where I could cover the roof of you know my my room and the walls as well. My wife was like, "You can have to take these down. It's time." You know, between that and my Spider-Man ones, it was just like, oh. But you know, designers is that's just one of those things I never paid attention to. I mean, even with my EU side of me, you know, I got into the comics last. I'd read all the books before I got really into getting all the comics. You know, I was more a Spider-Man comic guy. And so I couldn't really afford to do two, but once I caught up on the books, it was like, okay, I'll just plunge into there. And I slowly started to learn more about artists and stuff, you know, as, as the show progresses, because, you know, we're talking about the different art styles and I know that there's certain ones I don't really care for, you know, my preferences and stuff like that. But, uh, when it comes to poster designers, I've never even thought about that. It never even crossed my mind. Nathan. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I never really think about, I think about interior comic art quite a bit and, uh, uh, not poster art, but like one sheet art and stuff like that and the illustrations that go for instance with stories in insider but posters usually aren't something that i pay that much attention to because so many stinking movie posters are now they're very generic they tend to all kind of look the same and star wars posters most of the ones that i think of when i sort of close my eyes and picture star wars posters all look like sort of the general collage of star wars features you know they very much like the covers of a vast number of those star wars home video releases you know they got the image that looks like just a poster for the most part. Um, I will say that I do like kind of the more simplistic kind, the more uh, that sort of makes a statement rather than being something that just jams a bunch of stuff from the film into them. Yeah. Um, so I like the old Return of the Jedi with just the hand with the lightsaber that you mentioned. Um, I like the very uh, subtle ones back when they, as they were promoting episode two, 
They had one that has Anakin and Padme, and they are back-to-back, and oh, Anakin's yeah. lightsaber appears to be red instead of blue, but it says up at the top, just very small letters, it says, A Jedi shall not know anger, nor hatred, nor love. Um, I thought that was a really good one. They did actually a pretty, uh, I mean, it's kind of a bold one to look at because of what the image is. It's just Darth Maul's face, but they simply have one that says, At last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi, which is the poster for Phantom Menace 3D in some places. Um, but to me, oh, though, the posters that stand out are the ones you can get separately. Like, um, I actually have that one that uh, Mark was mentioning, the one that's got half Jedi, half Sith, and it has Anakin on one side, Vader on the other, and you put them together. I use that in my classes. I show that to my classes and then say, okay, ancient Greece, Athens, and Sparta, to make your comparison, you don't write it, you draw it. You make a mirrored image like that where you've got... Whatever you show on one side has to be mirrored on the other side so that Athens is on one side, Sparta's on the other. If you folded it, they would touch each other um, because that's what it does on that Jedi versus Sith one. It's got like Yoda on one side, Sidious on the other. Um, Obi-Wan with, I think it's clone troopers versus, I want to say it's Dooku with Magna Guard or something on the other yeah. side in exactly the same spot so that if you folded them together, they would touch. Um, so there's those. And the only ones that I actually have hanging up in my apartment um, except for signed ones. Like, I've got um, a signed Jan Dursima legacy print uh, from uh, The Last Celebration. I've got a signed uh, cast, fo- well, not a cast photo, but a, but a signed image um, of many of the characters from Clone Wars signed by a lot of members of the Clone Wars voice actors. Um, and then I've got some prints that were signed by Joe Caroni back in an old Con Carolina is one of the first ones that I went to. But the only ones beyond signed stuff that I actually have hanging up are there's one that is a poster of Kia Asamiya, the the manga artist. Uh, the, it's Kia Asamiya's cover for A New Hope, or a poster for A New Hope. It was used as a cover, I think, for one issue of uh, Star Wars Tales. And then I've got one that's a bigger poster that is, um, if you remember when they did the manga adaptations, not the photo comics, but the actual manga adaptations of um, the Star Wars films, that got mm-hmm. brought over from uh, Japan and printed here in the U.S. They did ones for the classic trilogy and Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace was two issues, and the two covers, if you sat them side by side, made one bigger Kia Asamiya image. That big image I've got as a poster on my wall. So I'm much more into sort of the uh, the EU-based or Clone Wars-based poster art because the movie art so often is just, let's throw in a collage of various characters and call it a day. Um, mm-hmm. Just not something that I tend to uh, to grasp onto. Although there was a really cool one. I want to say it was through Taco Bell, I think, for uh-huh. episode one where it was like four different posters and you linked them together into this giant banner-sized poster that you could do. I don't even know if I still have that anywhere. If I do, I'm going to have to to pull it out. I remember when I was a kid, my favorite Star Wars poster wasn't even a movie poster. It came from the fan club and it had um, a diorama-type scene set up with a whole bunch of the Star Wars action figures and a little key to the bottom of which ones were which so I could keep track of them. Nice. Well, see, and, and as I've progressed and as technology's moved on, now it's more about finding really cool images online and, and saving them. I'm just like, ooh, that would make a great desktop. And I've, you know, I've got that Windows uh, 7 and Windows 8 on my different computers, and I just rotate through that file of awesome Star Wars photos, and I'm always like, oh, yeah, I remember that the Millennium Falcon as it's swooping down over that planet with just all oh, the crisp blues and so, I mean, you know, and I can get all my posters on there. It became easier to do that than it did to, to fill my walls. And 
I mean, the only other thing that where I really have my poster stuff is is Christmas ornaments. I have like one that's got the classic trilogy, all those original uh, uh, theatrical releases when they first came out on it, and, and little ornaments of different ones and stuff. There were their miniature and replicas of the classic ones. But yeah, beyond that, though, I've never paid attention to the designers. Next question. Uh, as Darth Plagueis has become uh, a fan favorite EU novel, uh, one person wrote in, uh, Dwayne, saying that the only problem he has with that novel is that James Lucino made Darth Tenebris a Bith. And he says it's hard for him to envision a Bith being so powerful. Uh, what are your thoughts about that, he asks. See, I I actually like the Bith as a Sith. And, and I... I... I guess the insider kind of helped in that regard with, with giving me more of an idea of what it would look like. Um, Bith in, you know, the EU, they've always been super smart, super intelligent, very mathematically inclined, that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I, I envisioned that vast intellect and the way the Tenebris character came across worked even, even more brilliantly for me because it was like, that was scary. You know, I mean, somebody that's, that's smarter than you is dangerous <laughs> you know it's somebody that is that much smarter than you is like oh man the way that they worked it i mean even plagueis had had an intellect that was almost as as big uh you know i mean he had, had similar mathematic equations and stuff like that from being a moon but uh the bith side though i i loved it and, and the best tongue twister of all is tenebris was a bith sith i mean you know i say that's a lot i mean that that's a tough one i love saying it and people are always like what are you talking about i'm like mm. To read Darth Plagueis, you'll get it. But <laughs> I, I thought, you know, the, the way that they got their little mouths and stuff, the way they got the little cheek folds and stuff, they were always a kind of a, a creepy, like, race to me. And, and they kind of have that classic Roswell alien style uh, stylization. Or, or at least that, that's what I always envisioned as, you know, as a kid when I first saw them and stuff. That's kind of the correlation I had. More so even than than the uh, Duros. I mean, the Duros kind of look more classic, what you would think, like, the Roswell aliens do. But for me, the bits really kind of the big heads and stuff. I remember when I was like 10 or so, I, I had a, a Unsolved Mysteries book and it gave me nightmares about being abducted by aliens for like a week. And, and they had big heads and I remember that. And so the Bith always just scared the hell out of me in that regard. So for me, that there was some psychologically trip there that I was just like, oh, that's awesome. His master is so trippy. Yeah, I think it's – I remember it being weird when I first ran into it. But then again, I didn't think immune or immun, however we're supposed to pronounce it now thanks to Clone Wars Season 6. I didn't think immune – really stood out to me as what I expected Darth Plagueis to be either. Um, they've sure. kind of taken the approach that we're used to Sith being these races that we think of as dangerous. So why not give us ones that sort of don't fit the bill? Because it would seem like that would be a perfect way for them to hide in plain sight. I know Lucino was just looking for a character that was basically from a race that was thought of as super intelligent, someone very, very calculating when putting together Tenebris. Um, and he didn't Bear in mind, he didn't choose the Tenebris name, at least as far as I know, unless it was from the first time they were working on uh, Darth Plagueis before it got put on hold, because that was mentioned by Leland Chi uh, it, quite a while, like, like six, seven years before um, the actual book came out. He mentioned that name uh, back when talking about the Holocron continuity database and such. Um, mm -hmm. It's one of these characters that is hard to picture. Uh, Mark said it well, the insider image did a very good job of giving us a chance to see what this might look like so it wasn't quite as weird looking. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's At the same time, it didn't help with, with Plagueis, though. I was yeah. like, ooh, what the hell? True. Yeah, I don't know. It just it, it makes sense from a logistical standpoint. It's still very hard to to picture 
in many ways. I definitely fall back on that insider art to picture it. Although I do like the whole tongue twister, though, but I'll do you one, uh, one up from that, which is the joke that we had, gosh, I don't even remember when it was, about how uh, uh, if they numbered Sith with the same names, uh, the same way they did with Darth Weirlock in the one Sith, then uh, there is no truth to uh, the rumor that there was a uh, Darth Tenebris the Fifth. Uh, who didn't talk all that much, putting an end to the fifth Bith Sith with Pith Myth. <laughs> that was well, one of my favorites. One of my favorites. Uh, uh, I not, did, the, not quite as good, though, as the Coral Skipper, I gotta say. I love the Coral Skipper. Now, did, there, was there really a, a, a theory out there that there were five Tenebrises? No, I just made that up oh, because oh, I needed okay, to add I'll... fifth. I need to add fifth to the, to the tongue twister. Okay, okay, that's good. All right, next question, uh, still somewhat related to Star Wars, but may be able to branch out from it, actually. Uh, question is, do you guys listen to other podcasts? And if so, which ones? Started listening to podcasts in about 2009. Uh, That's when I first started listening to EUcast. I'd listen to the Forestcast once or twice around that same time. Uh, but at that time, you know, admittedly, it wasn't probably the best episodes for an EU fan like myself to have listened to. You know, I mean, it was a a kooks episode and things like that. So it didn't leave me feeling like, you know, that was really the place for me. Uh, and then I heard EU cast because I had a friend that he was huge into a uh, firefly podcast. And he's like, you, you've got to listen to these podcasts, man. These are awesome. You know, there's all this information and stuff that you wouldn't know about unless you knew about these kind of fans. And, you know, so he was telling me about that kind of stuff. And, you know, at first I was just like, ah, you know, I don't know if, if, you know, when I was listening to the Forcecast, I only listened to one or two episodes. And, and like I said, they weren't really ones that left an EU fan such as myself feeling like, well, that's really a place where, you know, I want to listen to. You know, I mean, I was really digging what, what Jimmy Mack had to say. We'll just say that. And then I, I came across EU cast, which was totally EU eccentric. You know, it was like that was the whole focus. And they were doing little fun games and stuff. And I was like, hey, this is kind of fun. You know, I can listen to this while I work because I used to work 12 hour graveyard shifts and stuff. So I was listening to that stuff in between my reading the books. And uh, I was like, this is pretty cool. And I didn't really listen to much beyond that at the time. I mean, I, I remember, Nathan, you had a couple of your EU primers, I, I think, were just coming out or, or you had one out or you had something out there at the time. I remember listening to a couple of yours and stuff, uh, but I really didn't even know where to go to uh, find them at that time. So it was, you know, I didn't really have much. And then, you know, EUcast had their audition and then I ended up getting on it. Uh, and then since then, I've met, you know, other people, you know, uh, we taught clones, uh, you know, whole bunch of other Tashi station people that were on Twitter that I've known just kind of through their screen names and stuff like that. And finally get to hear their voices and talk with them. Uh, you know, Pete Morrison, he's now doing rebels report and stuff. Uh, you got the fools that follow there. There's so many other different podcasts and stuff that I've gone on their show and stuff. And it, and it's, it's allowed me to then listen to their show and, and, you know, hear what they do and, and the fun that they have, you know, the Wampus Lair with Carl and Jason, they do a great job and, and have fun. And, and that's one of the things, you know, about listening to podcasts. It's, it's so great is there's so many different, you know, points of view and stuff. I think for me though, the problem is, is I just don't have much time in the day to, you know, listen. To, I, I mean, I, I have a hard enough time after me and Nathan record like this episode, I'll be editing this episode. So I'm listening to it again as I edit it. And I barely even have enough time in my week to get that done by Friday. That's why sometimes it, it comes out later because I've got so many different things going on. And Jane, and as soon as I put on a set of headphones, she is in my lap. She's just 
like I don't know what it is. She thinks it's distraction time. Like can't let dad sink into that world or whatever, but she just keeps me from it. So it's really hard to even get time to listen to anything. So, I mean, I really don't listen to that many podcasts, um, you know, beyond that. That's kind of why I, I go on to podcasts is, you know, so I can discuss with people because I just, you know, the little time I have when it comes to my fandom, you know, there's very few people around here that I can talk to. I mean, I can talk to my dad, but beyond that, no one else really knows what I'm talking about when I'm talking about characters from the books and stuff like that. So to be able to go on the podcast and talk with people like Riley and you, Nathan, you know, and, and go on to other people's podcasts and talk with them about their passions and stuff. I mean, that's, that's quality time for me. And, and, you know, even though I'm not able to listen to so many by doing that, it's allowed me to, to listen to more than I probably would have ever done before 2009 for sure. I think I'm kind of the same way, just from the standpoint of of time. I usually don't have a whole lot of time to listen uh, to other podcasts. Um, I, I don't tend to load stuff up podcast-wise onto my iPod, which I guess I probably should. I could take that to work with me and listen to it during my planning period and the, and the like. Um, but I don't tend to. So generally, if I'm listening to a podcast, I'm listening to it off of my computer. Uh, so I'm not listening to it when I'm in the car. Uh, we... In the Atlanta area, have the biggest uh, number one in terms, I guess, of listenership. I guess is what it is. Uh, talk radio station in the country, uh, WSB. So a lot of times I'm listening to that, especially during what would be my prime time to listen to podcasts, which would tend to be uh, my commute or right after I get home and such. Uh, as I'm sort of winding down, I'm usually listening to uh, local news, traffic kind of stuff, uh, but also commentary by a guy named Eric Erickson. He's becoming bigger on a national level, but he's a local Atlanta guy. Um, they've kind of got my loyalty through many, many years of listening, plus the way that they handled certain things like the recent crazy uh, Snowmageddon thing in Atlanta where they completely screwed up and people were stuck on the highways overnight in the ice and everything. Um, from the standpoint, though, of when I would usually listen to something off the computer, it tends to be when I'm playing a game, a video game. If it's one that I have played plenty of times before or one that doesn't really require listening to a whole lot. Like when I put in Defiance up until this recent patch that pretty much made the game unplayable for me, um, I would pop that sucker in and you wouldn't need to listen to much of anything, so I would turn on something on the computer. But still it would tend to be um, either an audiobook that I've gotten through iTunes, like I'm working my way slowly through the 50-hour unabridged Patriots history of the United States for the second time, um, or I would turn on something like um, the few Star Wars podcasts that I actively try to listen to when I get the chance. I tend to try to listen to uh, Star Wars Action News, Star Wars Report, um, because those are ones that I know the people behind them, but also there tends to be sort of a quality production week after week. Um, other ones I'll tend to pick up from time to time. I'll tend to pick up uh, some of the, the Doctor Who podcasts out there, especially under the miniscope that uh, Andrew and Sarah Gilbertson put out to listen to that, just kind of get a change of pace. Uh, but when I'm looking for something just kind of random to listen to where I don't feel like I need to listen to a series, I go and pick up Now Playing, which is a podcast also from the Star Wars Action News folks, Venganza Media, uh, and just pick a random movie that I know that I've seen enough times that listening to their discussion of it, I'm going to be able to pick up everything without having just seen the film. Um, there just aren't a lot of Star Wars podcasts that I get a chance to listen to nowadays because my time and my, you know, the, my few go-to ones are kind of a narrow narrow group there. Although, I mean, back in the day, you used to be able to listen to everything and keep up with absolutely everything in Star Wars fan on. I mean, bear in mind, I mean, the genre starts in 99 with Star Wars, well, at least as far as radio shows go. Um, 
I started listening in 2001. I started listening with Digital Llama Radio. Listened to all of those. Heck, I used to play those multiple times to listen to them. Um, and for a while, you could listen to that. You could listen to My Chrono Radio. You could listen to Requiem of the Outcast by Rich Siegfried and the Garners. You could listen to Star Wars and Beyond by Robbie Chastain. And for a while there, I mean, you really could keep up with all of them because many of them were monthly releases instead of weekly. Some were bi-monthly, as Chrono Radio was for a while. And a lot of times it was that very tight-knit community, so you knew the people who were involved in the shows, and that was part of your way of showing your support. Now, showing support a lot of times is about sharing links and things like that or going on shows as a guest because trying to listen to absolutely everything, there would never be enough time in the day to do it. I mean, I still run StarWarsFanWorks.com as a, a directory of where you can find a lot of these podcasts, but there, there's so many out there to keep track of at this point that I don't even keep track of them on individual pages with runtimes anymore like I used to. It's basically just a directory page now. There's just, again, there's not enough time in the day to do it. So uh, I would say Star Wars Action News and uh, Star Wars Report and now playing tend to be my go-to ones under the miniscope added in there with it, um, along with, uh, from time to time, just picking up segments of other shows when I see a description of them, like uh, Star Wars Miniverse, that shows up on Facebook and say, hey, that episode sounds interesting, I'll check it out. But um, oddly enough, for someone who does as much podcasting as I've done over the years, I don't listen to all that many anymore, just don't have the opportunity. No, I mean, that's the the good thing about podcasts that only do it once a month, like Star Wars Bookworms, you know, I mean, Teresa and Aaron just get together that one time and, and knock it out and you can go as long as you want. I mean, I remember when, when EUcast went from going weekly to try to go monthly and stuff just to try to get the hosts together at the right times because that was so hard. That was kind of what killed the show was that the hosts that were doing it, you know, me with one of them we could just never get together. It was always just only two of us and and we always wanted to have at least three and it was just, you know, so hard to do. So when you have those ones that only do it once a month and stuff, it's easier to kind of catch up on them, you know, and stay caught up on them. But when you got shows that are putting out once, uh, you know, two, three a week, you're like, whoa, wow, that's a lot of content. I mean, and, and then, you you know, on, on the production side of thing, I'm just like, wow, you know, you guys like are really like, how do you guys maintain having lives and wives and, and put out that much? I mean, I'm, I, I get it every time my wife's like, wait, how many podcasts are you on right now? And I start counting them off and I'm just like, well, that, wow, I'm over five. Wow, that's okay. You're right, honey. I do spend a lot of time on this little part of my fandom. Sorry. You know, I'm always, I got to kick everyone out of the room. And so I always think about that too. Like the, the, the side from the people that are putting their, their time and love into it. You know, I mean, there's a lot of dedication there and hats off to everybody that does it. Let's keep with this sort of general topic here and lump these together. Still random, but random within a category. Uh, we have another question relating to fan audio saying, Do you think with the new films coming out that we'll see a resurgence of fan-made audio dramas? Ooh. You know, I, I, I want to say I hope so. Because, uh, you know... Nathan and I, we've we've done stuff for Solo Sound before. Uh, you know, I mean, you were the voice of uh, Syndralig. I was the narrator for uh, Rest Thou Softly, uh, and that did a great job of tying into the films and tying into Dark Nest in a way. And and you know, I I just I thought that was a great little run. And and there are a lot of them out there when it comes to fan audio and stuff like that. But there's a lot more fanfics and stuff. So, you know, I would kind of like to see more people kind of do some fan audio and stuff, especially if like, you know, 
you know, make or forbid it, but if the EU as we know it ends up, you know, suffering and and not getting growing and not being created, I don't want to say the word dead, but I don't want it to die. But if it did, you know, maybe people could do some more fan audios because that's it's fun for one. It's a way for fans to kind of get together because you you yeah, you don't want to put it all on one or two or five people's shoulders. I mean, there's a lot of voices in this kind of stuff. And when you got one guy trying to do 12 different voices, after a while it becomes noticeable. And when you can get more people and get 20, 30 people involved in stuff, I mean, everybody, there's a, a, a bit of pride in that and a, a lot of fun. And there's a sense of accomplishment when it's all said and done. And you're listening to it and you're like, wow, that's really cool. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I would like to say, yeah, that there will be a resurgence. Uh, I would love to see something like that. And anybody that wants to post something like that on the Star Wars report, let me know. I would hope that we'll see more. Um, the fan audio drama stuff really kind of kicked off a little bit after the podcasting did. The fan audio drama is the first Star Wars serious story, not audio parody fan audio drama released online. Uh, was December 25th, Christmas Day of 2002, is the first part of our second strike that uh, uh, I wrote and Chris Hannell edited that first uh, act of. And it seemed for a while there that that was where things were leaning. Lots of different groups trying to produce Star Wars fan audio dramas. And then when podcasting became the huge thing that it is now with the advent of things like iTunes and, uh, and sharing through you know, Facebook and the like and that sort of thing, um, it took a huge shift. Because it's a heck of a lot easier to put together a podcast than it is to put together an audio drama. Um, I think the last new one I saw was maybe uh, Through Flame and Shadow. Um, I know that Joe Harrison is back hard at work on future episodes of High Stakes, and uh, there's a Thrawn trilogy audio dramatization version that's in the works right now, but yeah, it seems as though, for the most part, Star Wars fan audio dramas have trickled down to virtually nothing. The last year, if I remember right, the I think it was the last year or the year before last, that we did... Star Wars Fan Audio Awards through StarWarsFanWorks.com. We didn't even have audio drama categories, I don't think. Because there just wasn't enough stuff out there to put side by side. If there's only one thing, of course, it's the best of the year because it's the only one of the year. Um, your best bet for those is if you want to check them out, go over to StarWarsFanWorks.com, my site. Uh, go on the left-hand column, and that's nothing but Star Wars fan-made audio dramas. But don't expect that list to grow very quickly because... There really isn't all that much out there. I mean, unless we've got a lot of stuff that's in production that hasn't been made particularly known, there just isn't that much out there. Though I, though my hat is off um, to uh, Joe Mignano. I, I always say his name wrong. To uh, Joe M. from Dark Empire Radio for his Holonet audio dramas. He is constantly putting out um, Star Wars in story form um, through that and using it to do some good deeds with it as well. So um, as a genre, I'm afraid, because I don't know, I don't know, the prequels really kind of got it going, and then it died off after that. So maybe the sequel trilogy will get it going, but I wonder if audio dramas benefited not just from the fact that new films were out, but, but that podcasting and the audio release in that form was such a new thing that it sort of played into both of those. With that being sort of old news now to go along with these films, I don't know if that same sort of synergy can strike again, that same perfect well, storm to really get a lot more out there. I, I think you have all the key elements for that perfect storm you're talking about. I mean, now you've got StarWars.com has their soundboards where you have more characters, more sounds, more audio clips than ever that are 
free, ready, available to you. I mean, you can just casually stumble across that. Plus, they've put out so many different audio tracks and stuff for free. Uh, the tour video game and stuff. They put out its soundtracks. There are sites where you can find the KOTOR 1 and KOTOR 2 soundtracks. Uh, things like that. Now you're going to have Rebels on top of the Clone Wars. All these great audios and stuff that, that you can find audio clips for and stuff. I, I really think that the 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 tools are just readily available for the people. They just need that that ignite, uh, you know, that big bang. Hey, also from that same sort of batch of topics, we have the one that was actually forwarded to us from the Star Wars Action News Facebook page, um, asking, can you remind me where the Republic Forces Radio Network team went to? I thought they were planning on joining the Forcecast Roundtable, but I listened to their first two episodes and heard none of the usual RFRN cast. Tell you what, let me take this one. Um, and let me preface this. We have been accused of late, wrongly so, I think, because we asked the, the community to basically provide examples of these, and we only ever came up with two, um, of attacking other podcasts or attacking other fan sites. The only two examples um, that was ever come up with was one uh, when we really, really got into how we were totally blown away by how some websites were giving glowing reviews to Darth Vader uh, and the Ninth Assassin when we pretty much despised the story, thought it was horrible. Um, the second being a time kind of like what Mark actually said a little bit ago, probably without meaning to provide this example, um, of we talked about a fact, I don't even remember what it was, we talked about something that was mentioned and should have been old news um, that was mentioned on a podcast's interview episode at one point and that that fact seemed to never really proliferate so it all sort of felt like it was new news i don't remember what it may have been when a certain series was ending or something i think it was uh, during crucible it may have been but it was something uh, related to a fact that was shown in uh, that was heard on a podcast interview and i tried to explain why it was that this was surprising news to me because i didn't happen to listen to that particular podcast and dared to say why I didn't, which is is similar to something that that Mark said a little bit ago about uh, the atmosphere of a particular podcast at the time that I might have listened uh, back in the day, and that was taken. Both of those things were taken as we we constantly attack other podcasts. Well, bullsith, so to speak, and it's not attacking either to actually give factual information to provide context to something. Um, no ill will intended just trying to tell the truth. It's the same thing as, you know, it's not necessarily bashing President Obama if you talk about, I don't know, some kind of failed policy that has happened in the last four years that was well-intentioned, but maybe didn't work out as well as it was supposed to, right? If I say that the healthcare.gov website rollout was a disaster, that's not attacking Obama personally. That's saying, yeah, it was something under his administration. It didn't work well, so here's the pitfalls to avoid. Let's find a way to, you know, get the website to work so people can get their freaking health insurance. Um, so, prefacing that. Well, and I need to add because this was something that we were racking our brains about. You know, what what were times where we ever did that? I did use Twitter after April 1st to kind of throw my opinion out there over the Wikipedia's breast page debacle. Uh, you know, they had a... a, a prank that went bad with a side prank and it brought to attention the fact that they have a page on the female breast 
and it is huge, a huge, huge page where they're trying to be tongue in cheek about it and, and have a reason for its existence. But th it came to light on April 1st and they since apologized and stuff. And I'm of the opinion that I honestly think if part of the apology should be they need to delete the page. They need to remove it because that's you've got books from Aaron Alston out there that that have barely a paragraph of plot summary. And yet you've got almost five pages on the breast. I mean, it, and we don't have anything on homosexuality. You know, we've got homosexual characters, but we're not covering that. I mean, it just, it, it raises so much that's, that's negative in our fandom. And when that one came up, I, I, I realized after the fact that, Oh, well, I did kind of call him out for that. I, you know, so, you know, I, I do, I guess need to apologize for that. I mean, I did get a little mad about it, but at the same time, it's my opinion, you know, I mean, they don't have to take it down. They're probably not going to take it down, but I'm of the opinion that if they were truly sorry, they should. So that was another one just for state of throwing it all out there. <laughs> you know, that was actually going, that was another question we were asked is what was the thoughts on that? So I guess I'll chime in on that and we can scratch that question off the list. Um, I, again, I find it kind of like, what? There's, it's weird sometimes when you see stuff on uh, wikis of any kind where it takes something, you don't usually think of something from that universe and it's kind of a mundane thing, but it winds up on there getting a page because it's mentioned specifically in a story. I don't have that much of a problem with them having a page for it, although if they do, it should be tastefully done, and it should be something that it sticks to whatever it is that needs to be there for the source. Um, like maybe something about, you know, the, uh, the scientific aspect of, you know, mammals needing them to nurse the young, and here's... Uh, an example of, of this particular species that has a certain number or something, or these don't nurse and that kind of thing, maybe something more scientific seeming rather than just kind of in your face. Um, I don't think they were going for in your face, so I wouldn't have thought of that had it not been for a picture that showed Ayla Secura basically laying down half covered with one of her breasts sticking out. And I must say that that shocked me, and I thought, why would they use fan art like that for a page and then realized, no, that isn't fan art. That is from, that's Evan Wilson's Sleeping Ayla artwork from page 112 of Star Wars Art Vision. Star Wars Vision's the art book. And that blew me away that an official Star Wars publication <laughs> would have included nudity like that without any kind of content warning to its readers. So, I don't know. I mean, if official Star Wars fandom has that, whatever. You know, it, it was sort of a tempest in a teapot for me. Um, but at the same time, I could see where a lot of the rage was coming from. For me, the fact that it was promoted on April Fool's Day was kind of like the what? Having it there and having somebody run into it by accident and say, wait a second, maybe you should clean this stuff up and make it something a little bit more uh, to the standard of the rest of the site, sure. But to have that be something heavily promoted around a particular time, which I don't think was their actual intended April Fool's Day thing. No, that was a um, side gag. It yeah, I think that wrong. was, yeah, that's where it went wrong, I would say. I you know, I'm not big on the whole censoring idea. Um, but yeah, I do, I'd have been but you gotta never knowing about the page. You know, that that was, I think for me, that's where it came. It was like, because it was been around for what, like six, seven years or Probably. something like that? It's like, should have left it in the closet, guys. All right. So, rewinding back to the actual question. Um, so, so, the preface being uh, bringing up things for context uh, is one thing, attacking is something else. I'd like to think that we don't attack. So, uh, keep in mind the context of that which is going to be said here and on another question coming up. Um, no, Rebel, the uh, the Rebels Roundtable show that the Republic Forces Radio Network team, for the most part, is going to. That is, uh, the team itself was uh, is me, Jonathan Brenner, uh, Barrett Lawton, Jen, who 
tries to keep her last name out of uh, fan productions and stuff from time to time. Uh, that is uh, Dan Beasley. That is Jerry Stevens. That for the time was uh, Arnie Carvalho and so on and so on and so on. Um, the idea is that that team is going to be somewhat returning for a show about Rebels. Basically, when uh, Re Republic Forces Radio Network was winding down with season five of The Clone Wars, we talked to uh, Arnie at Venganza, and the question was, you know, is there going to be a continuation of this series to deal with Rebels? And it just wasn't a good time for them to be able to say, yeah, let's commit to something else. It could be a multi-year, long, long-running show uh, amongst all the many, many, many other shows they've got going. Marvelous just toys now playing and so forth. So the idea was no. And we got to talking as a group. Well, you know, maybe we could continue it with the same team in the same general format. We get Arnie's kind of thumbs up and blessing on it because we'd not want to step on his toes and such. Um, but let's do it sort of independently. Which led to me talking to Riley Blanton uh, for Star Wars Report, and we basically came up with the idea of something similar. Uh, Jerry won't be a part of it, Arnie won't be a part of it, just for, because of time issues and whatnot, but to bring in people like Mark and basically make this a new show for the Second Airborne Division at StarWarsReport.com that would talk about Rebels in a Republic Forces Radio Network style format. Um, when we started talking about it, the intention was uh, to come up with a title and get everything ready so that we could announce whenever we put out what was supposed to be our final Republic Forces Radio Network uh, about the Clone Wars movie, the one part that the show had never talked about because it started with season one. So go back, do a retrospective review of that, and announce the big new show. So we recorded it, took a little while for it to come out, and in the process I got everything ready for this new show, Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Um, that is getting a domain name, rebelsroundtable.com, uh, setting up the Twitter, but leaving it dormant, not actually looking for any followers, just kind of letting it sit until we were ready to announce uh, at Rebels Round. Same thing with the Facebook page, getting it ready to go, facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable, but leaving it unpublished until we were ready to announce. The episode finally came out announcing Rebels Roundtable in November of last year, at which point we launched everything. We made known the Twitter feed, we made known, made known the uh, domain name, and officially published the Facebook page and started gathering followers and so forth. Um, we've actually recorded some episodes that are sort of a crossover between Republic Forces Radio Network and Rebels Roundtable that are covering Season 6 of The Clone Wars, the first of those coming out later this month, um, that are going to be interspersed, in, basically going to be released in the regular RFRN feed and also going to be released in the Rebels Roundtable feed with some uh, intermittent little interview bits to get to know the team for those who are coming into the show brand new, not knowing most of the people from uh, maybe this show or from RFRN. But... Um, a short while after, I guess this was, what, March-ish, April-ish? I honestly don't even know. Um, another show launched their coverage of Rebels. It was the Forcecast. And when they launched their coverage of Rebels, they called their Rebels coverage Rebels Roundtable. Um, initially, that would, Mark actually saw this first, and, and there was kind of a hubbub and such on Twitter and whatnot. I didn't find out about it until I got home from work that day. I was being asked. Yeah, I had fans on the Star Wars report were asking me about it, and I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> um, basically, the gist is that um, uh, according to the people behind the Force cast, uh, they named it that because that's what their Clone Wars coverage had been called, Clone Wars Roundtable episodes of Force cast, not a separate series called uh, Clone Wars Roundtable or Rebels Roundtable for that matter. Um, and they said that uh, they had looked to see searched around to see if that title was already in use, didn't see it already in use, and therefore went ahead and used it. Um, they then, uh, there was some back and forth about the whole title issue and such, 
And basically the way it's boiled down is that there will be a couple different shows out there. There will be the Force Cast with their shows about Rebels called Rebels Roundtable. Force Cast Rebels Roundtable. We will have ours out there, the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable. We have RebelsRoundtable.com, Rebels Round on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable. Pretty easy to find for the show. Um, not sure it's that big of a deal to have the two different titles when you're going to have two different website names attached to it or different show names attached to it, Star Wars Report and Forcecast. Um, we weren't about to change the name of ours because, A, we had it out there first, um, but also we already had paid for the domain name set up and started getting the Twitter followers and the, the Facebook followers and that sort of thing. Um, but it's really not that huge of an issue. If it winds up with us and them having some of the same listeners or look for one, find the other, there's going to be crossover in podcasting anyway. Uh, and it should be, honestly, I think the quality of the shows that make the differentiation anyway. People are going to listen to what they find uh, most entertaining. The only thing that has me scratch my head about the whole thing was simply the line about, uh, well, we searched for it and that we didn't find anything. Because up to that point, no matter what search engine you were using, if you search the phrase Rebels Roundtable, the first two things that popped up were the Facebook and Twitter feed for our show. Um, it makes me wonder if the search was, say, on iTunes or something else uh, where the feed wasn't set up yet because there were no episodes yet to put into it or something like that. But again, not a huge thing, but I understand where there could be some confusion initially. So the original question was they thought we were jumping over to join the Force cast, but they listened to their Rebel shows and we have not been on it. There was never, ever any type of plan for us to have anything to do with Force cast. Uh, Rebels Roundtable is a product of uh, StarWarsReport.com. It is a spinoff uh, and a conglomeration between the alumni of Republic Forces Radio Network at RepublicForces.com and the team behind this show, of course, Star Wars Beyond the Films, also at StarWarsReport.com. Uh, similar titles, different, broader um, uh, series here. So Forcecast Rebels Roundtable, you can listen to that independently. Star Wars Reports, Rebels Roundtable, listen to that independently. Neither one has the slightest thing to do with each other. Uh, any more than if somebody sets up a website that does uh, news reports about Rebels and calls it, uh, you know, suchandsuch.com's Rebels Report would have anything to do with Pete Morrison's podcast, Rebels Report. Uh, just different sites, same name for a chunk of their content. In our case, for the show name. In their case, a, a part of a run of a, another show. Yeah, I think the uh, the fan crossover there wouldn't kill anybody. I mean, the shows are going to do their own thing. I did tweet, you know, when I brought it up to their attention. You know, I, I only did it mainly just to make sure that they knew that, that you know, hey, there's something going on. People were asking because I didn't know anything about it until they had said it. But I did. A, I had one point mentioned, you know, hey, a big, big episode of both groups, you know, kind of just kind of like burn the bush. You know, I don't I'm not mad. I don't care. It's, I haven't even recorded an episode yet. But it was just one of those things that the fans that were bringing it to our attention were kind of like, oh, the sky is falling. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I have no idea. You know, and then I saw, oh, OK, but yeah, not a big deal. Yeah. And I was not all that happy at first. But again, my my issue was the oh, you did search for it thing. But again, it could have been searched elsewhere. I'd like not to assume uh, ill will on the part of anyone as far as that goes, as far as I'm assuming they just went with Clone Wars Roundtable and just swapped out the name of the show like they have with some of their previous shows. And uh, I think that's the last one on that same sort of general topic uh, and also into the controversy topic because people misunderstand things uh, uh, often if they ascribe some kind of uh, ill will to something that is not the case. 
Um, that is, um, at the risk, and I love the way he worded this when he sent it in, at the risk of starting up a flame war in your email box or on your page again, thank you so much, but then goes ahead and proceeds and asks, uh, can you briefly explain the source of your, or at least Nate's, frustration with the latest issue of Star Wars Insider? Um, again, this is another one where, if you're not listening, you might ascribe some ill will. There is none intended, but it's one of these things where uh, it's a frustration with Star Wars Insider. Uh, this came up on the uh, uh, the Facebook page, and it seems as though anything that happens to touch on... There's sort of like four gr- groups maybe within Star Wars podcasting where anything that is mentioned about those groups that is in even remotely any way critical or not glowing causes the haters to come out and start the flame wars. There's about four different groups in that, if you count one that's kind of a cross between Star Wars podcasting and just general sci-fi podcasting. So again, not, don't don't read into this any more than I'm saying, boys and girls. Um, the newest issue of Insider um, is another of their examples of where when it comes to fan events or fan activities, they never bother to do their freaking research on what it is, especially when it comes to fan audio. Fan films, they don't really do much of their research. Um, they kind of go with the conventional wisdom, like that the first fan films out there included Troops. Well, Troops was awesome. Kevin Rubio's Troops was terrific. One of the first big ones, but not one of the first ever being made or being put online, because um, that belong to some other groups out there that were much, much smaller in scope and smaller in stature and that sort of thing. Um, But they're talking about the upcoming celebration, Anaheim, and on page 7 in their launch pad section, which of course has no uh, individual writer listed, so I cannot ascribe this error to any particular writer, only to the magazine itself in general. Um, It's talking about um, the upcoming behind-the-scenes stage that's going to have some Star Wars podcasters. Uh, Jimmy Mack, who you mentioned previously when talking about Forcecast, who's now on uh, Rebel Force Radio, uh, and Jason Swank, who's also with Rebel Force Radio, formerly of Forcecast, um, they are going to be uh, a big part of that chunk of the celebration track, the behind-the-scenes stage. But when talking about this and announcing this, they say in the second paragraph on page 7, uh, when talking about Jason Swank, says, when the opportunity came to host a podcast in 2007, he jumped at the chance to, and this is the issue, introduce the talk radio format to Star Wars. Now, I have to assume this is Insider completely blowing their research in the way that they put this, uh, or, or the phrasing being messed up. Um, but Insider tends to do this when it comes to fan productions or fan events. They'll say things that make it sound like they kind of know what they're talking about, but they wind up missing the point of what they're actually saying. Um, just to clarify on this, and this is where the, the, the annoyance came from, Jason Swank, uh, nor I, nor Arnie Carvalho, nor Chris Hannell, etc., etc., introduced the Star Wars talk radio format to Star Wars when it comes to podcasting. And it certainly was not done in 2007. Star Wars podcasting, uh, if, you're, if Star Wars podcasting is the online talk radio show format radio shows, uh, began back in 1999 with the team of Victor Mayer, Eugene Cash, and Mark Henderson doing a show that ran from 99 to 2002 
called Jedi Talk. Um, they did it as a streaming show, and you could download the shows as real audio files. Um, if your definition of a Star Wars podcast is a self-contained MP3 type file that you can download where you don't stream it at all first, it's just download-based, um, then the first of those for Star Wars uh, was Digital Llama Radio by Chris Hannell, Abe Paterka, Justin Whitlock, and Steve Phelan back in 2001. There was Jedi Talk streaming, Star Wars on Direct in French streaming, Digital Llama Radio picked up, and then My Chrono Radio picked up after that. Uh, the first show to actually be a Star Wars-based online radio show that released their episodes through what is technically podcasting format, the RSS feeds that you have to download with podcatching software like iTunes, was Requiem of the Outcast. And it was Rich Siegfried who really pioneered that within that particular genre. Um, so no, the Star Wars podcasting talk radio format did not begin in 2007 and did not begin with the individual they're talking about, nor that person's show. That person's show now isn't even his first show. The show he had in 2007 isn't even the first show from that website. That website had the Force.net podcast by Eric Blythe earlier than that, and they were a host for some of the latter episodes of Digital Llama Radio. Um, I do not think that Jason Swank or any individual amongst his creative team are claiming to have created Star Wars podcasting. But I think that this is another case where in trying to come up with things to say in an article about fan productions that they don't really understand, Star Wars Insider manages to say something that is out-and-out out false and misleading, and in the process winds up basically uh, flipping the bird by accident, hopefully, to people like the Jedi Talk team, the Digital Llama Radio team, the people who really were the pioneers in this genre eight years before the date that they're basically giving it. If they had just said that he jumped to the chance to participate in talk radio format or something like that, that's one thing, but to introduce it to fans, no. Well, no, what do you think easily... those other podcasts were going back to to a 1999? What were they? Were they cooking shows? Well, they could have easily just said introduce them to his style of and and problem solved. Yeah, so I just I wonder if if in trying to come up with something that was elaborate enough to get across their ideas and yet small enough to fit within the constraints of the launchpad section, they just didn't bother to do the research. But it's one of these things that really just it drives me nuts when Insider does this because it seems like anytime they talk about, you know, Star Wars podcasting, which is my favorite part of Star Wars fandom productions, um, it seems like they're always giving us the shaft. They don't ever seem to bother to do their stinking research on these things. Um, moreover, though, I guess we shouldn't be too appalled by it because if you look at that issue, it's Star Wars Insider issue 149, but if you've got the, I haven't checked the newsstand or the uh, comic shop exclusive cover version, but if you check out the uh, subscriber cover, look down at the bottom corner, they don't even have the right issue number on the thing. So if they can't get the issue number right, I guess we shouldn't expect them to get their facts about fan productions right. But notice, nothing against any individual podcasters or podcasts. Insider didn't do their homework, and that is what caused uh, the ire, uh, to answer the question there for our listener. Yeah, it, it was like a total big misunderstanding that kind of fell on top of our reaction to the iTunes review that we'd had that was also misleading because the iTunes reviewer himself has gone on to say, I made a mistake. That's not actually what I meant to say, even though they haven't changed the review. But it was just one of those things of the timing of it all just made it seem a lot more malicious than it was. 
as JFK might say, the guns of August. Yeah, that's a 13 days movie reference there. Okay, uh, next question. Moving away from any of the fan production type stuff here. Um, question. Do you have a red line for contradictions between the sequel films and the EU? In other words, is there an EU story that is so dear to your hearts that you will not accept the sequel films if they contradict it? Huh. Well, not accept. I mean, I, I, I can't avoid Nathan's intellectual honesty. So <laughs> as much as I may want to live in a fictional world, I mean, even if it goes in a way that the New Jedi Order, my prime era and moving forward, if that all gets knocked out of canon and, and doesn't exist, it, it's not that I'm not going to accept these other stories. It's just that I'm going to choose to enjoy the stuff that came before it and not. I mean, I. I it, I'll just look at it as an alternate universe. I mean, that's all that's going to happen there. I mean, if they if they go so far left field that everything that came before doesn't happen, or if they name you know Han and Leia's only daughter, you know Lisa Marie, I I I will just totally that's an ultimate universe from six, uh, seven eight nine forward. You know, I mean, I I would just definitely I would enjoy the ride, but I wouldn't look at it as Peter Parker Spider Man. I look at it as Miles Morales Spider Man. Yeah, for me, I don't think there is anything that would be a red line type of story, although I would have trouble – I take it back. The one thing I would have trouble with is if 7, 8, and 9 don't jive with 1 through 6. <laughs> that yeah. would be my issue, if 7, yeah. 8, and 9 don't jive with 1 through 6. Um, but no, from an EU standpoint, it's it's like Mark said. I would think of it as, as alternate universes. There's plenty of sagas, different uh, uh, series that I follow that have multiple universes. Um uh, so it's just kind of one of those, you know, it would stink to see the EU gone, but I would much rather see the EU as it stands now thought of as an alternate universe to something else that maybe builds on the Clone Wars, Rebels, and the live action films uh, and have them be distinctly separate than have some kind of hodgepodge fix where some stuff's in, some stuff's out, and it winds up being even more confusing than, hell, the Clone Wars era has been. I would much prefer separate timelines to a piecemeal, it'll all fit together, but we're never going to tell you how approach uh, based on what happened with the Clone Wars era. Well, and and also if they line it up just right, I mean, you could be like, okay, well, it's it's died now. We've got this other universe, but hey, we had these projects like Sword of the Jedi, and we had the story about Jade Core that was kind of in process. You know, it's been dead for five years or, or ten years. God, please, not that long, but. It's been dead for two years. Maybe now's a good time to revitalize those books. I mean, Darth Plagueis was put on hold and canceled before, and yet it came out years later. So I think in that regard, you know, if they made it clear that the original EU is the EU and everything that comes beyond it is, say, the extended universe, or they find a new terminology for the EU, and that becomes your EU2 in a sense, because they're not going to call it the EU2 because they want it to be the prime. So they're going to call it something else, or they should call it something else. I, I I would hate for them to continue to call it the EU when you know the original EU is kind of off to the side. But if they make that establishment that it's dead, then you know time passes, and then you could go back to those projects that we already knew about. It wouldn't be like, well, hey, can you write us a whole new story set in that old stuff? Star Wars stuff. I mean, that'd be a harder sell, but hey, you remember Sword of the Jedi? Now would be a good time to kind of kick that going and kind of, you know, milk that side pony. You know, it's kind of funny. The big mess right now is Clone Wars era. And what's going forward with, you know, Chewbacca is back and such. Uh, and Jim Lahane, a friend of ours, is uh, saying that he has uh, had been told by someone on good authority, no idea who that would be, 
um, that the thought process right now is that what we're going to see is an EU that is still intact up to basically Vector Prime, but then starting with Vector Prime, everything is gone or changed. Um, if that were to happen, or if the big turning point would be, you know, NJO is gone, but they pick up so that Chewbacca can be back and that sort of thing, this is all kind of Lucas's fault. And I don't mean it's all Lucas's fault in terms of he's creating new stories and trampling over something. No. Rewind. Back when the EU began, what did we have? They gave specific time frames that were absolutely off limits to the writers. You could not write about the prequel era in particular, especially you could not write about the Clone Wars. Uh, what little Clone Wars stuff we got tend to be stuff tying into uh, Joris Sabaoth. Um, and you could not write anything that was, I want to say it was 25 years after Jedi was what they were saying. So it ran into the time frame of unifying force or something like that. But you couldn't write anything a certain amount after the films, that is the classic trilogy, and a certain amount before them because of the prequels and the Clone Wars. And then when the Clone Wars got going in episode two, Lucas basically said, have at it, folks. And even earlier than that, around the late 90s, Lucas said, well, I'm not going to ever make a sequel trilogy. I only ever planned for six films, BS, BS, BS. Um, so have at it. Create stuff that passes that mark in the future that I had used and set aside just for the sequel films. If he hadn't opened up the Clone Wars, we wouldn't have gotten all these different comics and such that now clash when he came back to tell the story he wanted to tell of the Clone Wars. If he hadn't ever let the EU go past the point that would have been around the start of the New Jedi Order, he wouldn't have stuff set in that era for now the sequel films, in theory, to be clashing into. Probably still would be clashes, but it's sort of one of those, if you set aside an era specifically because of what's coming, and then you change your mind about what's coming and open up those eras, you know you're creating a train wreck the moment that you say, actually, I'm coming back to those ideas, but oops, I've already let you write in it. Oh, well. It just, it, it just doesn't jive, which actually leads to our next question, so I can kind of speed us along here, which was, uh, what are your thoughts on the Clone Wars TV show and the Clone Wars Republic comics? Um, which do you like better? Oh, now, I mean, obviously, they're probably meaning the Clone Wars, not the Gendy one, but... I would have to say now, with it all said and done, looking back on it, hindsight 2020, I would actually have to go The Clone Wars, then Clone Wars, The Republic's comic, then The Gendi. Um, which is funny because, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, season one and two, uh, when it was out, I wouldn't, I would put The Clone Wars last. I, you know, I wasn't watching the show. I'd, I'd catch a, an episode here and there and I'd balk at the fact that they were changing things like Ryloth that was tied locked and had been tie locked for 30 something years and, and now suddenly it's spinning because we had to have a scene over here. I, you know, stupid things like that, but they were still like, come on now, do your homework kind of things. Uh, but now looking back on it, yeah, I would say definitely that ranking, uh, the Clone Wars comic was great, still is great. But as you said, you know, I mean, it, we've already got that issue of three different timelines. Well, four, if you count the books doing their own little timeline thing there that did a good job meshing with the comics at least, but, they never quite lined them up right. So we've already got multiple universes and stuff. I mean, you know, we who knows? I don't know. Uh, I prefer Lego Star Wars, the clone. No. Um, <laughs> I would say that uh, it, it's actually, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. I would say that I'm now okay with either being the official version. And I would love to see them mesh if they can, but they're apparently not going to do that. 
Um, but I'm with Mark. Up to about the middle of season three. Put it this way. Before the time jump, back when episodes were being aired out of chronological order and Ahsoka was 14, using Sky Guy all the time and kind of being annoying, and the goofy storytelling we sometimes got, like Bombad Jedi and such, first about two and a half seasons, I would have preferred the Clone Wars comics and novels era version of it, the 2002 to 2008 version of the Clone Wars, I would have preferred that greatly over the Clone Wars cartoon series. Once they made the time jump and went from there, we introduced Maul, Death Watch becomes a big thing, um, we finally get to like Ahsoka and then see what happens with her and so on. Now, if we're talking about Clone Wars as a whole, I would take either or I would probably do them in the order that Mark said. I'd probably take the Clone Wars cartoon series because of the last two and a half seasons, especially the last two, I guess, plus six if you count that because that's sort of a separate netflix type of thing here um i would go with the clone wars cartoon series then i would go with um well begrudgingly for the first couple seasons then i would go with the uh, eu version previously and then i would go with tartakovsky although the tartakovsky one was interweaved into the you know the eu of the time for itself um so yeah now yeah. uh I don't know. I just want to see them do something that clarifies one way or the other. The fact that now we have both versions of the Clone Wars having effect on EU outside of that era probably means there's no way to easily excise anything. Speaking of uh, uh, making stories fit and uh, whatnot, uh, question coming in here. Uh, which is better? A story with completely original characters that juggles existing EU organizations, locations, and events really well, but is just better than average as a story? Or... A story using only characters that showed up in the six movies and never references anything outside of those six movies and really feels like it's not meant to touch anything else, be it just sort of a standalone story, but the story itself is absolutely brilliant. So <laughs> fits continuity and just okay, or seems to be completely devoid of continuity just about the films and such, but is awesome, which is better. It's going to be a rough one for me because for me, even a better than average story that does everything you say, if it does everything you say to me, that's brilliant. And so, so for me, the, the picture you paint for me, even though what money would see is better than average, that to me would be an awesome book. I mean, a lot of people say books that I love are better than average. I mean, I Jedi is a great book and I love the fact that it ties into all these other stories and stuff. So for me, I would definitely lean the other way because while the other one could be absolutely brilliant, knowing it's not going to tie to anything else kind of leaves me like, Oh, this could have been a story set in Lord of the Rings. And I don't know. I mean, that that's never been something I enjoy as much, but I mean, I'm trying to think of any example of just a standalone. That's got just those right now that doesn't, fall on the other one where it touches other things, other locations and other stuff. I mean, I don't know. Cast 22. I uh, see. So for Mark, this is eight does not compute, does not compute. Um, <laughs> I will say that while I much prefer my EU stories to have ties into other things, I want to feel like it matters in the grand scheme of things. It's part of the broader tapestry. Um, I would probably have said this time last year, at least, I would probably have said that we tend to not get books that just reference the six movies, don't touch anything else, that are standalone stories that are absolutely brilliantly done, that are really, really good Star Wars books. Because most of the examples of those things that we have are stuff like uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, Han Solo Adventures, that are just kind of meh books. They're all right, but they're not awesome. And I would certainly take an EU-heavy meh 
book over them any day of the week. But in this last year, we've gotten Honor Among Thieves. And Honor Among Thieves is just about as antiseptic in terms of not really touching any other EU stuff as uh, Razor's Edge is. But Honor Among Thieves nails the characterization so dead on that it feels like Star Wars more than almost any other Star Wars novel has felt to me in years. So I'm actually going to go with the second one. Give me something that really, really nails the characterizations and feels like Star Wars. Doesn't necessarily touch anything else as long as it's not destroying anything else. And I'll go for it, which is probably the same reason why I like particular aspects of certain things from the Clone Wars cartoon series. When it's really at its best and it's not destroying anything else, it's really awesome Star Wars to me. Same thing with Honor Among Thieves, which I'm sure you'll get a chance to read at some point when you finally finish getting through the slog that is Razor's Edge so we can talk about it. Yeah, Razor's Edge leaves a taint for me for this question. I'm like, that book is just, no, no, no. Hey, speaking of uh, writers and Star Wars books... Uh, what advice would you give to any potential EU authors during this new era of the EU? I, 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 I think I would have to give them the classic Lucas model. Wait and see. I think my advice would be um, do your homework. Um, <laughs> if we are entering into an era here in which uh, the EU is going to still exist, but certain things are going to be excised out, Know what's in, know what's out. You don't want to be doing your research and reference something that just got tossed out of continuity because of Episode 7, because then that creates a whole other continuity clash with your stuff and something else. For another thing, they're going to have to come in and retcon and fix. Um, if this is basically a relaunch of the EU with the comics going to Marvel, with a Del Rey's uh, Star Wars production winding down to almost nothing, with the idea that a lot of the post-Return of the Jedi EU might be going away anyway because of the sequels, if this is a birth of a new continuity, then especially do your homework. Let's make this something where the story group really does its job well, and we wind up with a much more cohesive, non-contradictory Star Wars continuity. But that is going to require Lucino-esque, Alston-esque attention to detail, so that what you get with these stories actually meshes with something else. If this really is the beginning of a new continuity, you have an amazing breadth and scope of storytelling opportunities. But don't let yourself run so far afield that you're not paying attention to what else is being produced around the same time so that you wind up with something that just winds up clashing with something that could very easily have been fixed. You know, don't ignore the other stuff that is going on out there. And that should be easy homework to do. If there's only a few things starting out. Nowadays, I know it would be difficult to do your homework for the EU because there's so stinking much of it out there. But if it's a new continuity, only a handful of things out there, do your stinking homework. Um, actually, and something else just popped to mind if I can rewind for a second. Um, regarding the whole idea of, uh, of good stories uh, with that don't clash with anything but fit the characterizations of stuff well versus otherwise. Um, Star Wars Volume 2 by Brian Wood is a good example of this. Star Wars, and this is exactly what we said, it tends to hit some of the characterizations well from the films. Uh, he does, His Luke, especially in the current arc, is the whiny little woman-obsessed, drooling over Leia little pain-in-the-butt farm boy that we sort of saw back in A New Hope. You could see maybe the A New Hope Luke with his pouting over, you know, Ben, I only wish 
Ben, we're here, and looking up as if he's only saying it to get Leia to be sympathetic and maybe kiss him again, kind of thing. Yeah, but I get uh, a, I get a clone uh, episode two kind of feel where he's like, Obi Wan doesn't like me. Like I, I feel Anakin being channeled. Well, there. It drives well, me nuts. But, but it's one of those things that if we had never gotten other stories in that era that showed Luke behaving differently, that might feel consistent with the films. True. At least somewhat. But the rest of the series has its instances in which it's trampling over other previously existing continuity. That's not to say that if it wasn't trampling over stuff that we would necessarily completely accept it, but it would be better off. You know, and if there were other stories out there that had Luke acting like this instead of acting more mature, then maybe we could accept it more. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is kind of like what Mark was saying. In his case, one, one thing that makes a story brilliant is connecting to other things. I would say that what makes a story have the potential to be brilliant is not to trample other things. Brian Wood's Star Wars was doomed out of the gate because of what it was doing with the storytelling and where he was pulling his characterizations from. It was doomed out of the gate, which actually ties into another question that we've got here, which is – it kind of ties into that – which is uh, why was Luke – considered the Alliance's only hope to defeat Vader and Palpatine when there were so many other Force users, Jedi and others, in the Alliance? And why was Luke so clueless about Jedi teachings for so long when there were so many other people in the Alliance who knew about them? Oh, man, and I, I hate to take the, the weak answer there, but that's the flaw in Lucas's vision right there. I mean, you can tell that when he decided to do the prequel trilogy, he changed a lot of what his original story was going to be and that's a big chunk of it. I mean, there are so many Jedi out there and so many people that know about the Jedi still alive that it makes Luke's not knowing about it almost, imp you know, implausible. In that regard, I could understand if they decided to do, well, we're just going to do a whole new continuity here. You know, just the films, just that one cartoon show. We're going to move forward and we're going to address some of these original issues that don't jive well because – that was one of them. I mean, think about how many different Jedi Luke did come across. I mean, Vimboda was with him for a long time, and then Ikrit, and yet he still was like, I don't know anything. And then he even ran across the uh, Chunthor, and he got all the, the – he practically got an entire academy curriculum right, right, right there handed to him. I mean – I don't know. And, and then you've got the aspect of, you know, Yoda went through all this training by Qui-Gon and these Oracle things, wills, whatever they were, to come back as a Force ghost and train people. And yet he shows up at the end of Return of the Jedi and Leia doesn't see him, even though she's got Force potential use, too. I, there, there's so many gaping holes in that kind of theory that, you know, if they did reset the EU, maybe then they could go back and fix that stuff. Because, yeah, that's those are great ponders because there's no sense in universe that I can make out of it. Yeah, that goes back to what I was saying, though, of as far as the characterization of Luke, what are you going to base him on thing. Um, I think that most of the authors, especially when trying to craft Luke, looked only at his characterization within the films. And in the films, he's assumed to be, you know, the last hope, except there is another, right, with Leia and all that. Um, whereas stories set in that era wanted to use Jedi... You know, those Jedi had to be essentially part of the Alliance because they certainly weren't going to be with the Empire. And you wound up with other characters out there like, you know, Kyle Katarn and such, uh, who, of course, wasn't a Jedi quite yet at that point. Um, but these other Force-sensitive characters out there, um, uh, characters like Q-Ron being part of the Alliance at one point, freaking Starkiller, going through and being one of the founders of the Alliance and such. Where did his clone wind up going off to and such? Um 
But I think that's the difference between um, if you're writing an EU story about, say, Mara Jade, or you're writing an expanded universe story about Talon Card, or about the Rogues, or about the Wraiths, generally most of their characterization came from within the EU. So you build the way you look at those characters off of the EU. And for some reason, so many authors took the easier way of building Luke's characterization, which was all over the place in the Bantam era. Um, building Luke's characterization so much off of him, either in A New Hope or Empire or Jedi, rather than the process he went through there or in light of other EU context, that, yeah, they constantly made him out as if he was the last and the only one when there should have been other sources of information for him. Uh, it is a plot hole and an inconsistency. I do not believe there is any valid actual in-universe reason for why he didn't get it, unless somewhere there was this big meeting of all the Alliance-tied Jedi and Force-sensitive in which they together came together and said, okay, now Yoda says this guy is special, so don't anybody say nothing. You hear me? You'll be kicked out of the ex-Jedi club. <laughs> all right, two to oh, go. Man. Two to well, go. Hold on, hold on. I got, I got something there. <laughs> That's great. Oh, but you made me forget it. That was... <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, it's okay. okay. That was funny. All right. Two to go. Uh, just wondering if you guys have ever considered doing a show on things beyond the films that aren't a narrative-based offering. For example, a show focusing on role-playing material, which is usually more presentation of imaginary facts than a narrative that also presents facts while telling a story. Uh, I know the offerings are a bit slimmer at the moment, but similarly, have you ever thought of doing a show on Star Wars video games? Actually, that's uh, absolutely some of the things we've thought about. Uh, we've talked about doing uh, KOTOR 1 and KOTOR 2. Uh, I haven't been able to play The Old Republic yet, but that would be something down the road be fun to do as well. Uh, I finally got a computer that, that should be able to handle that, so that that makes it easier and stuff. But uh, yeah, the video game side of things, we have talked about doing that uh, at some point. Um we have, it hasn't been something that's going to jump down onto, okay, in May we're going to do this one. you know. Uh, but we have had a few events and things like that, like Vector. You know, We just had that where we've been working up on that for a year. Uh, one of the ones that I would like to do as well also is New Jedi Order. But we do have a, a, a lot of the role-playing books, the uh, Wizards of the Coast, the West End game type stuff. Uh, and we could always go over that kind of stuff as well. Um, they, I mean, sooner or later, we're going to pretty much have covered all the EU works uh, at some point, I would think. But there's always things to ponder, so we can always get away from that. Uh, you are an optimist as far as covering everything. Unless you mean just they're just going to wipe it all out from continuity and we'll be starting back and covering each new thing as it comes out. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I just... I was. I mean, we've talked about it. It's. It's certainly more... I think it tends to be more interesting talking about stuff that has a story element to it. Um, we tend to talk about things like the new RPG releases and whatnot in our years in review. Um, we could take some time to talk about it. I think part of the issue with those, though, is accessibility and what we have, what we have familiarity with and that sort of thing. I know I've – my collection of Star Wars books, uh, the novels and the young reader stuff like you know Jedi Apprentice and whatnot in the comics – pretty much complete, at least in terms of the things that I choose to collect. Like, I don't choose to collect the art books and stuff like that, or I don't choose um, to collect, unfortunately, many of the RPG books. So I've got a handful of old West End Games books, but they're either Solitaire Adventures, they're uh, official Star Wars Adventure Journal, or they're usually signed copies of something. Like, I've got the Tales of the Jedi Companion signed um, from back in the day. So there's that. 
I mean, I at one point was getting West or uh, Wizards of the Coast books uh, through the mail to review that they were sending me, but a lot of those I don't have anymore. I've really only got a couple where it's the era that I'm more interested in from Wizards of the Coast stuff. Um, and Fantasy Flight, Fantasy Flight actually is kind of an unusual situation because a buddy of mine wants these too. And what I'll do is I'll order them at a discount through Miniature Market, which is already enough of a discount to make up for the shipping cost. They'll send it out to me. I'll get it, go through it, take my notes for the Star Wars Timeline Gold, put them on there, and then I'm pretty much done using the book other than having it sit dusty on a shelf for a genre I don't collect. So instead, this buddy of mine sends me some money through PayPal that makes up for about half the cost or so of what I spent on it plus a little bit of shipping, and I just send them to him. He keeps them for the collection, and it works out for me basically being like renting the book for just long enough to put it on the timeline. So I have – and to do a little video review of it. So a lot of that stuff I don't have on hand right now. Um, so it's kind of a accessibility with that. Same thing goes for video games. I tend to try to play all the big Star Wars video games as they come out, when they come out. Um, and I played the vast majority because I want to get the story content and use it for the Star Wars Timeline Gold. As before, it still irks me that they never put out Star Wars Lethal Alliance for the PSP digitally. It's the one Star Wars PSP game that had story content that I've never got a chance to play because my PSP is a PSP Go, which is digital only. Um, but part of that is platform availability. Okay? If I, for it's my, like in the last uh, console generation, uh, actually the one before that, I had the Xbox, two of them because one of them broke, the GameCube, Xbox was my main one, GameCube was my secondary, and then I had a PS2 briefly that I only used to play a few things before I traded the thing in. The previous generation um, uh, to us now uh, had a Wii, we still play Wii games uh, at this point on the Wii U, had an Xbox 360 that is the Star Wars version so I could play Star Wars Connect, uh, and then my main system, PS3. Now we're into another console freaking generation. Uh, and I got the Wii U. Uh, I guess it should also count handles. I guess the 3DS and the, uh, the the Vita and the Wii U. And just wound up getting thanks to a crap ton of store trade-in credit and a friend of mine who traded in a bunch of stuff. But was getting out of games to to start a career and just gave me a bunch of his trade-in credit. Finally managed to get uh, it was a heck of a deal. It wound up being like less than a hundred bucks. Um, a PS4, a PlayStation 4. But will I ever get an Xbox One? Probably, but not for many, many years, probably. Just like the years before I ever got an Xbox 360. So there's this, there's this level of what games do we each have available? What systems do we each have available? And when are they making more Star Wars games for which platform? And it's even harder when it's PC gaming because, as Mark was saying, you have to have a PC that has the specs to be able to run the stinking games. Um, I can run... For instance, The Old Republic now, but if I wanted to play Defiance, not on PS3, but play Defiance on PC, I'd have to upgrade the thing because I couldn't play that. Um, one of the things that drives me nuts about PC gaming is uh, the stat issue with them. So it's something we could talk about, but it almost has to be something that is an old enough generation that both of us have had a chance to get their hands on the game and whatever console it is and play it. And had that story still years later have enough resonance and importance for us to want to spend an episode talking about it. Um, there will be shows like that, uh, but it's just kind of one of those things where, you know, it's it's not as readily available a topic as say, comics or novels would be. Yeah, maybe someday. I mean, I didn't get the police, uh, PlayStation Three, the Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty at all, and if I'm going to get any, I'll probably end up getting either PlayStation Three or PlayStation Four down the road. But that's. I, 
too many trips to Disney and now a celebration, so. <laughs> and not that it matters anyway, because right now, the only new Star Wars games out there are like Attack Whatever on the, the, the iPad and, you know, Tiny Death Star. Um, what was the last one for consoles? Star Wars Pinball? I mean, they just... There really aren't any big Star Wars games in the offing, except for, of course, Battlefront, but that's Star Wars right Assault away. Team. Yeah, that's have what it is. Have Star you played Assault that one? Team. Yeah, that's the, that's the <laughs> iPad one I was talking about. At least it's better than that uh, Force Collection card game that was an absolute piece of junk. And I play a lot of digital card games. It was freaking horrible. Um, but yeah, hopefully once Battlefront arrives, the new Battlefront uh, by DICE, that'll be one we can talk about, because by that time, um, that hopefully we'll have access to the to the next-gen or next-next-gen systems or whatever they're calling the PS4 slash Xbox One generation. Yeah, if that comes down onto PlayStation 4, that's that's a sold. I've got to do it because I missed the boat with Xbox, the original Xbox. I was able to get the internet and finally be able to hook that dang thing up literally the month they stopped providing online service on the Xbox. So I was never able to get the uh, download content for your uh, Battlefront 1 or Battlefront 2. I think it was the second one where you could play Kit Fisto and Asajj Ventress with her lightsaber nunchucks. Uh, never was able to get any of that in the bonus levels that you could only get downloaded. Oh, so kind of kind of really mad about that because those sort of games I absolutely love playing, but I, I've never been able to do that online gameplay with, with friends across the country. So if that comes to PS4, I am definitely going to be working hard. I mean, that's got to have. That's right. We will have online multiplayer events that we could even have with listeners for a Battlefront if we're all playing on the same system. Ah. Um, or we could just jump on there randomly and as we're fighting against stormtroopers or whatever, have people calling us... Um, any number of homophobic, uh, racist, etc., uh, etc., et epithets because they're nine-year-olds that speak like they're clan members. <laughs> anyway, um, not to speak poorly about online gaming, but holy crap, sometimes I'm glad that there's a mute button. Um, and our last question, I think this is uh, a good question, though I'm not sure um, that we have a clear answer to this one. Question is... Disney, Del Rey, and Lucasfilm all claim that they need to make the EU more accessible. From a business perspective, they do need to find a way to sell more books. However, how would you advise them to do it? Is there a way to increase sales, make the EU accessible, etc., while at the same time maintaining continuity and telling good stories? Oh, I, I, I almost wonder if, if we're looking at two different questions. I mean, because... I don't know if they're necessarily saying they need to make the EU more accessible, but more that what we're seeing is they need to make Star Wars more accessible, which to me is silly talk because Star Wars is awesome and anybody that sees it will fall for it. I mean, you just got to find a way to market Star Wars. I mean, there's no reason to make it accessible. But if you're looking at making the EU accessible itself, I think they need to do the Marvel tactic. And, and with that, I mean both just comics and the new films and stuff you know think about the new jedi order that was a series of books that that was also an era i mean you know the, the era spanned the book series and they have very few works that still fall into that era for the most part that era is that 19 book series uh but they had things planned out and they really planned it well well marvel do, has these marvel events 
uh, where they'll have like a, a six or a 12 run issue. That's the main core story with crossovers happening into the other stories and stuff where all the characters that are existing in this prime universe, basically in this case, your G level canon or your C level canon, whatever you're, you know, aiming for. Uh, but, but, and that's what they need to do is they need to be marketing this as one continuity. I mean, if they're going to go forward with the movies and stuff, that would be what, where they need to go with it. Uh, you know, whether they kill what came before and make it a separate continuity down the road or whatever, but they need to be marketing that and continuing to move the story forward in that kind of progression. You know, I mean, you introduce your characters and you introduce, you know, some of the plot and then you move the characters forward to another spot where now they're in a place where, you know, as they get this reaction, now they'll react differently than they would have in the other movie because they've had a, a growth happening. Uh, you know, Oh, and I remember what you had said earlier. It was about Luke, uh, you know, and, and this goes with this example because, there was that moment where Luke's character changed from the whiny eh, to, to more brooding and what you see in, in return of the Jedi. And they always talked about Mindor, you know, the battle of Mindor and when Luke stopped being a general and when he left the military side and how that changed him. And that was like that moment. And then finally you got, you know, shadows of Mindor and you saw what it was that had been the profound change for Luke and made him, you know, decide to go more the Jedi route. But that's kind of the thing that they need to kind of focus on is, is making that work forward. And it seems like, you know, they're doing that with rebels right now. I mean, they're they're putting out what we got six different little books, one of which is an original story and and, and stuff. And they're kind of introducing you to the characters one by one, the guys that are going to be the key players in the show. Uh, so, you know, maybe that's going to be the, the, the route they go. I think having a story group, though, with with the people they have on there, Pablo Hidalgo and Leland Chi, those are names that give me a great sigh of relief. Uh, you know, I mean. For me, you know, when rumors and stuff of Chewie showing up, I'm still ever hopeful. There's been enough rumors or lack thereof of concrete word that Chewie could be showing up in a flashback of Vector Prime where we see his death as a reason why, you know, Han is by himself and Leia is with him and Chewie is not there, thus solidifying the EU and making it, hey, we're actually going to roll with this. And, you know, it's set in a five-year gap where there are no books and stuff and, and Jason's kind of off and Jaina could be doing her own thing and we could just focus on the big three in this case. I mean, you know, I, I'm of that mind that they could do this with the story group and stuff. So I think that, that they're going to, you know, move forward in a way where, like you said, Nathan, they're going to keep things going and they're going to do the research. Whether they're going to piecemeal, pick and choose, kind of like when Marvel's went to Dark Horse – with the continuity or if they're going to just scrap it all and go with a secondary, this is where we're starting from with the films, the clone wars and moving forward with this. I, I think that story group is going to be leading the charge. You know, I, I hate to say this because, and I, I always say, I hate to say this, but honestly, I've sort of like gotten into my head that again, I'd rather see clean breaks than a mess because I think about the clone wars and the mess that exists now with the TV series versus uh, the books and the comics and so forth. Uh, heck, even their own spinoff books, right? Uh, like Wild Space. And I think, you know, if what, we get, what we're going to see is a clean break and a new continuity. See, I don't know how you make it accessible now. I don't know how you make the modern EU accessible because it has grown so much and unless you're going to keep telling stories that are in an era that we've seen over and over and over and over again and tell ones that don't connect to things like Honor Among Thieves, um, then I'm not sure how you do it. Honor Among Thieves is a great book, but I don't think you could have an entire line of nothing but books like Honor Among Thieves because we would get sick after a while of things not really connecting together. Just sort of being solo stories, no pun intended, with really good characterizations and such and, and a good uh, atmosphere um, for the storytelling. However... 
if this is the beginning, again, of a new EU, if they do decide to sort of restart continuity as a new timeline, maybe with just the films, Clone Wars, Rebels, whatever, then in that case, I think they're in a great position to make it accessible because they are starting at a ground floor. But what they need to do is do it in... I'm not even sure of a good example of this, really. Um, I guess Farscape maybe is an example um, with some of the comic series that they put out or some of the things that Dark Horse is doing with like Buffy the Vampire Slayer now that the show is over. Um, but it needs to be going, doing it while the series is going, which is they need to treat and respect the expanded universe as a part of that broader universe like the story group is supposed to really be trying to make things uh, happen that way. So, yeah. for instance, if we're going to have a – I mean, say we're going to have for us um, a new comic series that is meant to detail the events immediately after Episode 7, the aftermath of Episode 7. They need to make sure that it's going to fit with what we're going to see in Episode 8. They need to make sure it's going to fit other materials being produced around the same time and then promote it as such. This is an integral part of the story. Um, yeah. Uh, and a reference can, in the movie to it would be helpful. That would be helpful. Do some uh, uh, connecting back and forth, maybe even even cross, especially like for video games or something, cross-promote it as something tying directly into it, like a defiance type of a thing. Um, give us a chance for us to see characters moving in and out of, the, the, uh, of one media into another. Like, okay, at the end of this book, we see this character take off on a mission, but then that mission shows up in a video game. And at the end of that video game, uh, there is something they have gotten their hands on that winds up in the possession of our characters as they move into Episode 8 or Episode 9 or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, really connect it, but promote it as such big time. And I would honestly say on any of the products, uh, except maybe the comic, because you don't really have a back cover to the comic, but on the trade paperbacks maybe for the comics, promote it with a question You know, at the beginning of the, the, the cover text. Uh, the cover text, let me give you an example. Um, uh, you've got, uh, I just grabbed it off my desk here, the Lost Jedi Adventure Game Book 2, The Bounty Hunter from the UK. Um, it gives you the, the, the back cover text, and it has the title up there at the top, but it doesn't have like a big bold-faced statement. Give us a statement or a question like, how did the Jedi come into possession of this particular item? And then have all of your little description about the storytelling on the back. If there is a fundamental question or a fundamental part of the broader story that this tale is meant to tell that matters in the grand scheme of things in this, in this new story group directed continuity that you got out there, make it clear on the books what question it is answering. Don't just give us a vague cover that doesn't really match with what's inside. That's just a collage of characters like some of those posters we talked about to bring this full circle. Um, mm -hmm. Give us cover art that draws us in, but give us something on the cover, even if it's just a description that lets us know where this fits in the grand scheme of these. Oh, this isn't just another standalone story that doesn't matter. This is finally going to explain this one character's backstory that's in Episode 7. And then you know what? Don't contradict that backstory in Episode 8. Make it matter, and if there's something they shouldn't touch because it's going to be coming up in the films, don't let them touch it. If it's going to be something like, again, going back to the whole thing with the Clone Wars and the sequel trilogy era, they're going to be stomped on or they have been stomped on because they were off limits for a reason and then allowed only for the same reason they were off limits in the first place to finally come to fruition and smash the living hell out of it. Okay? 
if it's something you want to deal with, don't say, well, well, readers would buy it up like crazy if we put, you know, this character in the story and told his background. Granted, it's going to change in episode eight, but people would buy it like crazy. We'd make a lot of money. Have some storytelling integrity and care about the long-term viability and integrity of the franchise as a storytelling venture, because at its heart, that's what Star Wars is. Marketing is what makes the money out of it, but if the story sucks, people are going to stop caring uh, as far as that goes. It's all about presentation. Show us that it matters. I actually was thinking about this the other day, and I'm going to probably bring this up tonight when we record about the disappeared episodes from Clone Wars Season 6, and that is that Jar Jar Binks, if Jar Jar Binks had been presented in Episode 1 the way he was presented in Episode 2, or the way he was presented in the disappeared episodes of Clone Wars Season 6, I don't think we would hate Jar Jar as much. Instead, in Episode 1, the characters hate Jar Jar. <laughs> Qui-Gon is, Qui is calling him a local, you know, and saying that, that won't be necessarily like, go away and such like that. He's grabbing him by the tongue. Don't touch anything. Uh, Obi-Wan doesn't say, who is this? He says, what's this? When talking about Jar Jar, um, even Anakin is talking down to Jar Jar. The only person who really doesn't talk down to Jar Jar all the time is Padme. Okay? The, if the characters belittle and hate this character, surprise, surprise, the audience, who's already going to have some issues with the character already, are going to latch on to that because, hey, that's what the characters are supposed to do. They're supposed to mock him. Jar Jar is supposed to be everybody's whipping boy. Yeah, so, even 3PO was whipping on him. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, present it as something we should respect, and that will help engender respect. You still got to earn the respect, but at least show us that you yourself respect what it is that you're putting out there. If you respect it and you give us a reason to respect it, we will respect it with our dollars. See, and everything you just said, and with that, I'm going to add, you know, when the Bantam era used to take and put the little uh, two chapters of, of four or five books at the back of their books, do something like that. You know, if, if you're going to go forward and do, like we said, you know, a whole new reboot or a whole new universe all into itself, advertise your products at the end of the Rebels episodes. If you're going to keep the old EU material as well, advertise the old EU books. Put those up there at the end. You may also like this book because that's one thing about the TV that parents hate is that it doesn't promote reading. And if you put that at the end of your thing, it's like, oh, hey, Disney, they're so good. Like at the end of their episode, they even give you like these options. Like, hey, you like this episode? Check out these books. Like they're trying to get your kids into the books because what are they going to be doing in school? Books, 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 books. My kid is reading so many books right now. And I'm just every time he gets to a point where he can read the, the Star Wars books because it falls under his age level and they finally count for the points. I'm like, yes, because I just can't wait till he gets older and he reaches the point where he can read all the really good books and they count for his education. I mean, that I think it would be another thing that would help. I mean, you, you've talked about the story, you know, being representative in all these works, but you know, the marketing needs to do the same thing. I mean, one thing I think when it comes to Star Wars stuff, they're quick to market Star Wars, but very, very rare do they market the EU. I mean, even an insider, they're like, they'll have a little thing in the side and they're like, EU, tidbit kind of thing. And it's like, and it has nothing to do with EU really at all. I'm like, come on, market the EU right. Amen to that. It just reminds me of the one time that I was blown away. Right. I had fought the worst of all wars and witnessed the redemption of evil. I'd seen balance restored to the Force, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, but now, was it, light is turning into darkness like it did when I was born, and now with my friends and my loyal allies, uh, uh, I, I don't know if we can win or whatever the heck it is that he says. When we saw a trailer 
for Vector Prime the novel with Mark Hamill reprising his role as Luke Skywalker for the voiceover, that got people excited for the new Jedi Order. We don't get that most of the time. Uh, but then again, you don't see that much in publishing anyway. It's very rare, unless it's someone like James Patterson, that I ever see a trailer on or a commercial on television for a book. So that yeah. may just be a Death matter troopers. of, you know, just just marketing in general for publishing. That would be something, though, that would be nice. I mean, that when they had the fan films for Death Troopers, I mean, there were some that were really good. I mean, uh, but you're right. The Mark Hamill doing the Vector Prime was probably a, oh, my God moment. Yeah, or maybe look. I just think back. Uh, one of the things that got me reading Transformers comics was uh, they used to have Transformers cartoon style commercials that ended with the characters in the poses that they were on the newest issue of the Marvel Comics Transformers series back in the day. That kind of yeah. thing would be exciting too, but you don't really see that kind of marketing for comics or for books, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I mean, the marketing needs to be there for these companion materials, and they need to show what they're supposed to be. Uh, and but that finally wraps up all the questions that we were sent for this sucker. Which wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us and pondering on as we share our fandom. Uh, remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report Second Airborne Division, www.starwarsreport.com. Just look for the Second Airborne tab there. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. But I am a kind of uh, active on Twitter, so if you like Twitter, you know, do that too. Fire us a, uh, a little uh, tweet. We will tweet you back. Uh, so if you have any other Star Wars and or EU questions or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. And if it wasn't obvious before, if you want to check out the upcoming uh, Rebels Roundtable, is rebelsroundtable.com. Also, facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable and Twitter at rebelsround. Uh, you can also check out the Facebook page for my Star Wars Timeline Goal. It's facebook.com slash Gold. all there uh, as one word as well. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles, and you can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate, because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening again. May the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. that will be accused of bashing instead of stating facts. Again. Or that I'll get a PlayStation 4 this year.
Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get the show started. I'm one of your hosts, the Defender of the Ew. The Ew! Ew, Defender! Gosh, it's so hard to say He's anymore. the Defender of the Ew. Ew. Ew, that expanded universe. It's so stinky. It's defender gross. of the Brothers Kissing Sisters. Ew. <laughs> Uh, new story and if there wasn't those other stories of Luke not uh, playing you know the the, the goofy kid uh, out there new our sponsors have more than not now.